0: the best part of a year has now passed since the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February. The imbalance between the two countries in military strength was striking. You can see here the Russians with, who are in red hugely outnumber the Ukrainians in yellow there. Uh, vastly more personnel, although they've now called up even more, greater resources in artillery, warplanes, helicopters, massively greater defense budget. Ukraine only has one submarine, although they are, of course, they have access to the, the Black Sea. Russia has 63, and so on, and we haven't even covered nuclear resources. The Russians invaded from the north, and the south, and in the east. They advanced from areas they had already been occupying since 2014, but they met with unexpectedly tough resistance. Equipment was destroyed or seized by Ukrainians. These are points of points of the invasion and uh, Russian strikes, uh, artillery and airstrikes. You can see it's on the north, east, and the south. But a lot of Russian armour has been bogged down, has been destroyed or seized by the Ukrainians. Here's one of the famous pictures of a Ukrainian farmer pulling away a Russian armoured vehicle. Here's the famous column of troops and armour advancing on the capital city, Kiev, from the north, which was brought to a halt and forced to disperse. It was 40 miles long at one point, uh, threatening the capital city, but without success. Putin, President Putin of Russia, was forced to abandon his attack on Kiev, and uh, focus instead on the southeast. Uh, The Russians, in other words, the Russian bear here in this cartoon, had bitten off uh, more than it could chew. Conflict... Continues in the southeast and the east, and Russian forces went over to continuing and in largely indiscriminate artillery and aerial bombardment, causing huge damage to civilian areas. And of course, while the Russians, uh, the Russian invasion caused a huge displacement of population, people fleeing in terror from the bombardment and the bombing and the artillery attacks, not just from the eastern areas, but also from other parts of the country as well. While the Russians continue to consolidate their position in the eastern Donbass region, they've also been driven back by Ukrainian counterattack. And all of this, is still going on, of course, uh, shows, I think, that the Russians have abandoned their original expectation of conquering the entire country in a short space of time. We are in a conflict which, as in World War I, the defence seems to have the upper hand, a war of attrition in which neither side has made much progress. Ukraine is fighting on its own territory but is succeeding in destroying bases and supplies across the border. And so uh, this is a, a conflict that is dragging on, I think, expectations of a swift... Uh, Ukrainian victory are probably misplaced but clearly at the moment they have the the upper hand it's not just a regional conflict it's having global effects Uh, the enormous outflow of refugees and displaced people from Ukraine over six million by this summer uh, has had a massive impact on Eastern European economies in particular and Ukraine famously is the breadbasket of Europe, so called. It was effectively blockaded for several months, not to mention the damage done to its agriculture by the war. Many countries depend to a considerable degree on Ukrainian produce for their food supplies. Supplies have been interrupted, <coughs> excuse me, and pr- prices driven up. Here, It's a surprising list. Wheat imports, for example, sourced from the Ukraine. Moldova, next door, you might expect, but Lebanon, Qatar, Tunisia, Libya, the Middle Eastern countries, even Pakistan, are heavily dependent on wheat from Ukraine. And 42% of global exports of of, uh, sunflower oil come from Ukraine. So no wonder it's having this kind of knock-on effect uh, all over the world. And of course, r- uh, Russia's oil and natural gas resources have been vital in supplying other European countries, particularly Germany. And the blockade of Russian trade with retaliatory measures led, it's been the major factor and a massive hike in energy prices, which we're all suffering from. There have been some small successes in negotiating a uh, negotiating resumption of grain and food exports from Ukraine, but the situation is still particularly bad. And it's quite clear that Putin is using uh, gas and oil, oil supplies as uh, a weapon in order to try and persuade the countries which depend heavily on, uh, on uh, uh, Russian energy supplies to put pressure on Ukrainians to come to negotiate a settlement. NATO countries, especially Germany, have been forced to re-examine their defence policies, increase their expenditure on arms. Russia has depleted its resources of manpower and material and is increasingly dependent on out-of-date military equipment. It's called up 300,000 more men to the armed forces, but it's clear there's some resistance to that and also uh, it's pretty indiscriminate. They're not... Uh, the kind of veterans and experienced troops that uh, is sometimes being claimed by Russian state-controlled media. So how effective the call-up will be remains to be seen. Russia uh, is, there is, of course, um, fighting uh, on, on territory that's defended strongly by the Ukrainians, and there have been problems of morale and commitment Uh, on the part of the Russian forces, particularly young conscripts. Ukraine is almost entirely reliant on advanced weaponry supplied from outside. And this carries with it a serious risk of the war escalating as the Russians have so far failed to cut off these supplies. So all in all, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has caused the most serious crisis in world politics for many years. And you sometimes see people saying, this is the first... War in Europe uh, since 1945, but of course uh, that ignores the Balkan conflicts of the 1990s. But those, although they caused considerable concern and some intervention on the part of the Western powers, were essentially local or, or regional conflicts. This goes far beyond that. Well, so far, so familiar, you probably know most of that. Every day we've been deluged with information about the latest situation. In an age of 24-7 news media, the dramatic uh, events have been on our screens day and night. There's no excuse for not knowing what's going on. What I want to do this evening is to produce uh, some historical perspectives on this. What are the long-term factors, if any, behind the conflict? Are there any historical parallels? Do we have any reason to believe the conflict can be resolved? If we do, when and how? History mobilised into propaganda on both sides has played a major part in reporting the conflict. How accurate is the history we're being shown? What exactly is new about the present war? Well, kind of back to basics. So let me begin by reminding you of where Ukraine is and where it's been over the past centuries, a more complicated question than you might think. To begin with... Ukraine has not been an independent, sovereign state for very long. In the early modern period, so the 17th, 18th centuries, Ukraine began to emerge from the breakup of a large, now largely forgotten state, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Through most of the 18th century and the 19th century in particular, Ukraine was part of Tsarist Russia. Then, with the Bolshevik Revolution, which overthrew the Tsar, there was a brief civil war, after which Ukraine became part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. You can see there the acquisition in the 18th century, in particular, of parts uh, of territories which then were incorporated into Ukraine. But then following the uh, First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution, you can see how it began to constitute itself in a serious civil conflict before it was absorbed by Soviet Russia. In World War II, Ukraine changed hands again. Most of the Western part was under German occupation from 1941 to 1944. Then we have the Reich Commissariat of Ukraine, indeed, part of the uh, Nazi Empire in Eastern Europe. In 1945, of course, when Hitler was defeated, uh, the Soviet armies occupied uh, Berlin and the eastern part of Germany. It uh, was back under Soviet control. In 1954, the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev ceded the Crimea to Ukraine. He'd actually been the, the Soviet commissar in Ukraine before and after the war. And since then... Putin's Russia has reabsorbed the area along with parts of southeastern Ukraine that was never actually internationally recognized or hasn't been up to now. So what are the historical roots and antecedents of the present conflict? Almost as soon as Vladimir Putin and his forces uh, invaded Ukraine, political pundits and parts of the media began comparing him with Hitler. Both men imposed dictatorial rule over their respective countries. Both men suppressed dissent and eliminated independent media. Both men had no hesitation in murdering people. They considered a threat to their rule. Both Hitler and Putin invaded a series of neighboring countries. Both used lies and disinformation to justify their actions. More strikingly, perhaps, both used a symbol, in Putin's case, Z, and of course in Hitler's, the swastika, to advertise, to advertise support for their aims. Both men had no hesitation in causing death and destruction on a massive scale to further their ends. Jonathan Katz, a Washington based director of the Democracy Initiatives, has said, in and I quote, Putin is this century's equivalent to Hitler. Putin's character, he says, disturbingly mirrors the traits of Hitler. For me, the former director of US National Intelligence, James Clapper, told CNN, Putin is a 21st century Hitler, a phrase used by a variety of commentators ranging from the former, former Irish uh, Tizek, Prime Minister Leo Varadkar, to the Ukrainian Minister of Defence. British liberal Democrat politician Norman Baker has claimed in the Daily Mail, everything Vladimir Putin does, he says, echoes Adolf Hitler. <clears throat> even the Prince of Wales, now King Charles III, speaking to a Jewish Holocaust survivor in Canada in 2014 after the Russian invasion of Crimea, said Putin is doing just about the same as Hitler. <clears throat> Critics of the West's cautious approach to Putin's territorial aggrandizements routinely invoke parallels with the Munich Agreement in 1938 in which Britain and France sought to appease Hitler and avoid a general war by forcing Czechoslovakia to give in to the Nazi dictator's demands for a long, long chunk of its own territory. <coughs> now of course, as Jewish groups in particular pointed out, Putin has not established extermination camps or gas chambers, as Hitler did, to carry out the mass murder of European Jews. But Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has directly called the indiscriminate bombardment of his country's major towns and cities by the Russians as a genocide. Poland's President Andrzej Duda has echoed this by asserting the Russian invasion bears, as he says, the features of genocide. It aims at eliminating and destroying a nation. The mounting evidence of indiscriminate massacres of civilian men, women and children and atrocities including torture by the Russian armies as they retreat in Bucha and other Ukrainian towns is impossible to ignore or despite um, absurd Russian efforts to do so, explain away. So in my view, this is genocide. These people are being killed because they are Ukrainians and not for any other reason. And, of course, genocide was at the heart of the Nazi project. This year, last summer, uh, sees the 80th anniversary of the Nazis' general plan for the East, a proposal for the mass murder by disease, starvation, neglect, and extermination through labour, as they call it, of up to 45 million Slavs in order to make way for German settlement across East, Central and Eastern Europe. And its final version, completed in June 1942, this official policy of the Nazi regime, uh, the document uh, which came to light in 1957, laid bare the full extent of the most radical genocidal program ever devised. Over the next 30 years, from 1942, when it became official German government policy, assuming, of course, a German victory in the war, the Nazis proposed... To liquidate, as the euphemism was, 50% of Latvians, Estonians and Czechs, 75% of Belarusians, 85% of Lithuanians and Poles. Ukrainians were to disappear altogether. 35% deemed racially suitable by the Nazis were to be Germanized; the rest were to be eliminated. That gives you an idea of the, the plan uh, where uh, 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 the future uh, uh, government of the former Russian territories, East European territories, uh, was, to, was to happen. Of course, the plan never had a chance of becoming reality, but the genocidal attitude towards the millions the Nazis regarded as Slavs subhumans, I to mention, found expression in the killing of thousands of Polish intellectuals and the deliberate starvation of more than three and a quarter million Red Army soldiers taken prisoner by the German forces, penned into huge enclosures on the open European, East European steppe, left to die without food, shelter, or medication. Anyone who thinks the Ukrainians are Nazis or that Stalin was the principal enemy of the Ukrainians and other inhabitants of East and Central Europe in the war needs to read this shocking document. Of course, Stalin also ordered the shooting of some 40,000 Polish officers captured when the Red Army took over eastern Poland in fulfilment of the infamous Nazi-Soviet or Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, signed in August 1939. And they deported thousands uh, of mainly upper-class Poles to Serbia, uh, Siberia, sorry. Uh, But these terrible crimes were committed in, in the name of class warfare rather than ethnic hatred. For the victims, of course, it's made little difference, but the almost unimaginable scale of the general plan for the East really does, I think, put it in a category of its own. The Nazis' genocidal intentions went far beyond the elimination of so-called subhumans who stood in the way of German settlement. Genocide comes in many varieties and degrees, and the mass murder by Nazis of nearly 6 million European Jews was qualitatively different, in my view, from the vast extermination programme contained in the general plan for the East. From the very beginning, the Jews were, for the Nazis, the world enemy, Weltfeind, dedicated to destroying Germany and the Germans in a huge global conspiracy aimed at ruling the world. Hitler believed every Jew was uh, predestined by their racial character to work towards this end, Nazi war- wartime propaganda showed the three most powerful enemies of Germany: the British Empire, the Soviet Union, the United States of America being steered from behind by malevolent Jewish conspirators behind the enemy powers it says the jew now this absurd. Uh, But uh, uh, conspiratorial fantasy led the German invaders of East European uh, countries and areas to go out of their way to degrade and humiliate the Jewish inhabitants of the area forcing Jewish elders to dance in the town square so they collapse from exhaustion Jewish girls to clean latrines with their blouses committing similar atrocities too revolting to detail. It was this belief that caused the Nazis to try and eliminate the Jewish population of Europe in the quickest way possible, in contrast to the much longer-term mass extermination planned for the region's Slavs in the general plan for the East, who were seldom treated with a grotesque and elaborate sadism reserved for the Jews. So in the light of these facts, few things in Vladimir Putin's propaganda seem more absurd than his claim that Ukraine is ruled by a clique of Nazis, not least, of course, because the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, is himself Jewish. That's not to say that there are not or never have been Nazis or fascists in Ukraine. In particular, a wartime partisan leader in Ukraine, Stepan Bandera, who fought against the Soviet Union's invasion of Ukraine, was deeply anti-Semitic and had ties to the Nazis. Uh, Hence, the... uh, Russian claim and Russian propaganda that they've invaded Ukraine to combat what they call Banderists. There is a far right in Ukraine and to its members, Bandera is a hero. There he is in a demonstration. One element in the Ukrainian military resistance to the Russian invasion, the Azov Battalion, has its roots in an independent ultra-right pro-Nazi paramilitary movement. There they are. You can see, again, their use of a uh, 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 fascist-style symbol. For these men, the Russians are the true enemy, most of all because of the deliberately induced famine in Ukraine of the early 1930s. And Many on the Ukrainian right, including the pro-Western government in power a few years ago, have tried to give the famine equal status with the Holocaust by providing it with a similar name, Holodomor, and claiming that its victims numbered 6 million or even more. Since the war began, however, the Ukrainian government has taken steps to swamp the neo-Nazi element in the Azov battalion. It's now reckoned to be about 20%, and of course that's only one small part of the Ukrainian armed forces. Because the Ukrainian fight for democracy, it's important to remember, uh, is is, is at the core of the resistance to the Russians. It's a fight for the Ukrainian people's right of self-determination, what they, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, their rights to decide their own future. It's a fight against the regime in Russia that has extinguished democracy and crushed civil rights, free expression, independent news media, and all political opposition. Putin looks back to World War II as a model for the war against Ukraine, and he bases it on an appeal to Russian patriotism. He sanitized all aspects of the Russian past, from Tsarism to Stalinism, in his bid to boost patriotic settlement sentiment and, by extension, support for himself, of course. And his regime in Russia emerged in the late, the end of the 1990s. Out of the unrestrained greed of the transition from communism to capitalism after the fall of the Berlin Wall, transition that created the billionaires we now know as oligarchs. It's an ultra-capitalist regime. It's a kleptocracy that's corrupt to the core, and it's a, uh, it's a, a system that found imitation in the corruption that riddled the Ukrainian political system after independence. It's still very much present, though at the moment, it's been forced, forced to take a back seat as a struggle for survival against Russia dominates everything. There's a there's a capitalism crushing the Ukrainian national identity. Under, uh, unlike Hitler, Putin doesn't think of Ukrainians as subhumans who have no right to remain alive, let alone a malignant global threat to the existence of his country, as Hitler considered the Jews to be. In fact, uh, he thinks of them as Russians. On the 18th of March 2014, celebrating the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine, he declared. Russians and Ukrainians are one people. Kiev, he went on harking back to the Middle Ages, is the mother of Russian cities. In February 2020, Putin repeated his belief that Russians and Ukrainians are one and the same people, as he said. He alleged that Ukrainian national identity was the creation of malign foreign influences, particularly NATO. There was, he said, no Ukrainian state. It was a fiction. And it followed that apart from a tiny minority of Nazis, as he call them, who ruled them, Ukrainians would welcome the Russians with open arms as they liberated them from what was essentially, in Putin's eyes, foreign occupation. <coughs> so, Russian military conscripts were not prepared in advance for the invasion. They were quickly disillusioned as they encountered unexpectedly stiff resistance. Since the invasion, they've only made slow progress and they've been beaten back in some areas. Civilians in occupied towns and villages have come out with Ukrainian flags to demonstrate against them. Artillery bombardments and airstrikes have inflicted massive damage on the physical infrastructure, uh, physical fabric of many Ukrainian towns and cities, but they don't seem to have weakened Ukrainian resistance. If anything, they have strengthened it. And of course, the idea uh, that um, Russian, that the Ukrainians are Russians, is belied by this linguistic map of uh, Ukraine. And the swift, the intended swift occupation of the entire country, followed by the rapid removal of Zelensky and his replacement by a Russian puppet, which is Putin's original aim, has not been realised. This is a military and political defeat of humiliating proportions for Putin's regime. Russian forces have recognized this embarrassing reality and have withdrawn from central Ukraine to consolidate their position in the east. And here, the task is a bit easier, perhaps. If you look at this linguistic map, you'll see that the eastern provinces are dominated by Russian speakers. It's the red part there. Uh, in the central and western parts, it's Ukrainian speakers who dominate. Uh, Ukrainian is not a dialect of Russian. It's a separate language. It's more closely related to Belarusian with a distinct grammar and spelling which um, we've actually all learned uh, in the last months by spelling Kiev uh, in the Ukrainian way, K-Y-I-V rather than K-I-E-V in the Russian way and Odessa with one S and so on. As a result of decades of domination by Russia, many, if not most Ukrainians, can speak Russian, but there's no doubt they have a distinctive cultural and identity, an identity that Putin is determined to obliterate in the eastern provinces by holding, for example, rigged uh, plebiscites uh, just the last few days, uh, where no doubt 99% of the voters will opt to join Russia, Recognizing their essential Russianness, if you believe that, of course, you believe anything. Now, it's here, if anything, that the parallel with Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union can be found. <coughs> For Hitler, also expected a swift and easy victory, as he sent his armies, more than three and a half million men, with thousands of tanks, self-propelled guns, armored vehicles, combat aircraft, and artillery across the border of Nazi-occupied Poland on the 22nd of June, 1941. So confident was Hitler that the entire edifice of the Soviet society, which he conceived of as a vast mass of ignorant and subhuman peasants ruled by a tiny clique of manipulative but unpopular Jewish Bolsheviks, would collapse, that he didn't even bother to equip the troops with winter clothes. At first, his confidence seemed to be justified. Along a thousand mile front, the German and Allied armies, uh, Italians, Hungarians, and so on, uh, Romanians, advanced at breakneck speed, encircling and capturing or killing hundreds of thousands of Red Army soldiers. Hitler and his generals are euphoric. That's really not saying too much. Franz Halder, the chief of the German Army Supreme Command, noted in his diary on the 3rd of July 1941 if I claim, that the campaign against Russia has been won in 14 days. But Halder and his master had miscalculated. As Ukrainian peasants greeted the invading troops with the traditional welcome offerings of bread and salt, expecting liberation from the horrors of Stalin's rule, they were met with more horrors as the Germans looted and burned their way through the countryside, reduced towns to rubble, and met even minor acts of resistance with mass executions and the torching of entire villages. Hitler's illusions were very similar to Putin's in that respect. His German troops in 1941 uh, burning a, uh, a Ukrainian village. Thousands and thousands of such scenes were repeated right across the area of conflict. And soon... Heartened by Stalin's abandonment of Bolshevik rhetoric to call on people to fight the Germans in a patriotic spirit, partisan groups were springing up everywhere as Stalin's generals mobilized military reserves and brought them to the front. By early August, General Halder was confessing in his diary, we have underestimated the Russian colossus. The Soviets, unlike the Germans, seemed to have limitless reserves of men and equipment. Reinforcements... Kept on arriving to take the place on the battlefront in the hundreds of of the hundreds of thousands captured or killed, and of course the behaviour of the German occupying forces, the army and the SS, uh, was so violent and so murderous that uh, Russians, civilian and and military, rallied to the flag because they really saw no alternative. It's the only way they could think of surviving. And worse was to come when the autumn rains arrived, their armies became logged down in oceans of mud. Soon the Russian winter was beginning to bite, with temperatures plunging to forty degrees below zero. Such was Hitler's overweening confidence, born of the continuing contempt for the Slavs, that he ignored all these problems. Never before, he claimed on the eighth of november nineteen forty one, has a giant empire been smashed and struck down in a shorter time than Soviet Russia. he was living in a fantasy world. His troops were tired after months of continuing advance. They were ill-equipped for a winter campaign. Their numbers were depleted by continual counterattacks launched by the Red Army. Disaster loomed. And when the Soviet general, Georgi Zhukov, bringing fresh reserves across from the east, where the Japanese had turned towards the Pacific, away from Russia, launched a counterattack, the Germans were forced back. In the terrible winter conditions, they began to freeze to death in their thin summer uniforms. Hitler's propaganda minister, Josef Goebbels, launched a massive campaign to get German civilians back home to send winter clothing to the beleaguered army, but it was too late. Under the strain of defeat, one senior German general after another suffered a heart attack or a collapse in health and resigned, including Helder himself. Hitler regarded anything other than uncompromising resistance to the advancing Russians as cowardice in the face of the enemy. Any general who ordered a strategic withdrawal in the interest of preserving the life of his troops was met with instant dismissal. Furious with his senior officers, Hitler took over as commander in chief himself. And the following months in 1942 saw the German forces advance once more in the east, but it was a false dawn. The winter of 1942 to 3. The Battle of Stalingrad sealed their fate and inaugurated a period of continuous retreat that ended only in 1945 with the Soviets occupying Berlin and Hitler committing suicide. Both Hitler and Putin have been encouraged in their deadly illusions by subordinates who have not uttered a word of criticism of their policies. This may well be because of the fear of the consequences of disagreeing with their master a televised meeting of Putin a few months ago with his leading advisers uh, showed him relentlessly bullying them until he got the support he wanted. As for Hitler, anyone, especially a leading general who disputed his policy of never giving an inch to the enemy, was likely to find himself cashiered from the army and without a pension. But both dictators surrounded themselves also with true believers, men who long since surrendered any independence of judgment and just acted as a kind of echo chamber for their leaders' views. Bless you. In the cases of both Putin and Hitler, ideology, Russian nationalist belief in the essentially Russian character Ukrainians, in the first case, a dogmatic uh, conviction of the superiority of the so-called Aryan race in the second, created an overconfidence that led to humiliating military defeat. In both cases an invasion that was supposed not to meet any serious resistance, turned into a disaster. In both cases, a dictator acted on ideologically driven assumptions that quickly turned out to be false. Both Putin and Hitler um, uh, began to project their own murderous beliefs onto those they imagined to be their enemies. Hitler and Goebbels justified the Holocaust, the mass murder of six million Jews, by repeatedly claiming that the Jews, in their turn, were aiming to exterminate the German race, while Putin and his subordinates have justified their assault on Ukraine by repeatedly claiming that the so-called Nazis in the country's leadership were aiming to exterminate the Russians in the Donbass region in the east. But there, the resemblance ends. To judge from his speeches over the past few years, Putin, who said he regards the collapse of the Soviet Union at the beginning of the 1990s as a national catastrophe, wants to recreate the Russia of his early years and reabsorb it, uh, reabsorb into it neighboring states that he believes have no right to an independent. Existence as a um, particularly groan inducing pun, there, but that does a kind of express his, um, what he thinks that he's doing. He's evidently prepared to use any means he considers necessary to achieve his goal. Now at the moment, at least, the conflict as such seems confined to one part of Europe. The aims of the invasion limited, even shrinking, as Putin's abandoned the idea of regime change in Ukraine and is opting for the division of the country instead. And as the breadth and depth of Ukrainian national consciousness had become clear, Putin and his troops seem to have become convinced that the Nazis they claim to be fighting are not just a tiny clique, but virtually the whole people. Hence, the the violence of, of their treatment of Ukrainians in occupied areas uh, the hatred that uh, is evident in so much of what they've been doing. Still, the mass murder of civilians in Ukraine seems to be a product of defeat and retreat. It was not planned in advance, unlike the mass murder of Ukrainians and other Slavs by the invading Germans in World War II. More importantly, perhaps Hitler's aims, in contrast to Putin's, were not confined to one corner of Europe. He was never interested in merely reversing the territorial settlement achieved by the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I, not interested just in establishing German hegemony over the rest of the continent. His aim, as he suggested in this famous scene from Chaplin's film, The Great Dictator, released in 1940, uh, suggests the kind of global reach of his ambition. <coughs> Addressing his followers on the 5th of November 1930, before he came to power, in the Rhenish town of Mannheim, after his success in September's national elections, which really brought the Nazis onto, uh, onto the, the, the political stage in Germany, Hitler lamented the fact that in the so-called scramble for Africa in the 1880s, Britain and France had snapped up the lion's share, Leaving only the uh, on leaving only the wait a minute sorry I'm going the wrong way here that's better yeah leaving only the um, the leftovers as it were to the newly minted German Empire f- founded in 1871. Here's what Hitler said in 1930: No people had more right to the concept of ruling the world. Weltherrschaft, the German expression, than the German people. We would have had this right and no other nation. Stormy applause. Not England, not Spain, not Holland, no other nation, he said, could have had an inborn right on the basis of its energy and competence and also its numerical strength to claim the domination of the world. In the first division of the world, dividing up of the world, we fell short. But we stand now, he says in 1930, at the beginning of a new great shake-up of this world. Today, he says in 1930, some people claim we're entering an age of peace, but I have to say to them, gentlemen, you have a poor understanding of the horoscope of our times, which points us never before not to peace, but to war. (coughs) So here's Hitler talking to his supporters, revealing the global scale of his ambitions three years before he came to power. For him, the invasion of the Soviet Union was only a step in the direction of world domination. As its vast resources would form the basis of even further invasions, including ultimately, as he hinted in his unpublished sequel to Mein Kampf, the so-called second book, the United States... Perpetual war, war without limit of time or space, was, he believed, the only way for the Germans, or Aryans, to use his terminology, to succeed in the struggle for existence between races for the survival of the fittest, his warped version of Darwinian ideology. It's hard to believe the sheer scale of his ambition, and the sheer uh, insanity uh, of it, based on a... Racial ideology, a racist ideology that saw the Germans as vastly superior to all others. Putin's aims are far more limited. He's driven by a committed and misdirected nationalism that wants to reverse the territorial settlement of the early '90s and reestablish Russia, as he sees it, in the ranks of the great powers. They are based, His views are based on a bizarrely twisted view of history that sees anyone who tries to frustrate them as a Nazi to be killed just as the Nazis were by the Red Army in the Second World War. Both Hitler and Putin are consumed by a deeply held ideology rooted in false memories of World War. Hitler believed that the German nation had been betrayed by socialists and Jews who stabbed the army in the back in the First World War, and of course, actually Germany, was defeated fair and square on the battlefield in both the West and the East in 1918. Hitler was committed from the outset to reversing that defeat and resuming Germany's grasp for world power, though on a far larger scale than before, and eliminating the Jewish world enemy, as he called it, was an essential precondition of success. Putin believes that the Russian nation was betrayed by leaders who weakly abandoned its integrity, the integrity of the country after 1917 and again after 1989. He too is committed to reversing what he believes to be historic defeats. Genocide was the result of both sets of beliefs. The fact that Hitler's is planned and Putin's is not doesn't take away any of the horror that's happening on the ground in Ukraine today. What has the West's response been and what should it be? Since the fall of communism in 1990, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a military defensive alliance dominated by the USA, has steadily expanded eastwards. And the first obvious result of Putin's invasion of Ukraine is that it's in the process, NATO is in the process of acquiring more members. The more aggressive Russia has grown, the more necessary membership in NATO has become. It's Russia that's provoking a response here, not, as some have claimed, the other way around. There's no credence at all in the view put forward by Russian propagandists that the invasion of Ukraine is a response to the eastward expansion of NATO. Secondly, NATO, the EU, the USA, and their allies have responded by placing embargoes and sanctions on the Russian economy and especially on Russian exports. Since it includes many of the world's leading economies, it's obviously having a serious effect on the Russian economy. But that won't be enough to cause a general uprising in Putin against Putin in Russia. Sanctions seldom have such a dramatic effect. More serious for Putin and his regime uh, is the defeat that his his forces have encountered in uh, in Ukraine and the eastern areas of Ukraine. It's also important to note that many countries in the world support Russia, or at least are neutral, don't support the West, like China and India, the two two largest countries in the world in terms of population. Although there are signs now that these countries are beginning to become impatient with Putin, and realize that his aims are not going to be achieved, at least not in the short term. There's a particular problem with Europe's supplies of natural gas, which depend heavily on uh, Russia, particularly of course uh, in Germany. But there are other other pipelines that you sketched on this map uh, that are also significant. It'll take some time for this dependency to be reduced, giving Putin a significant lever over European policy Especially where, as in Germany or in uh, more southerly states, the dependency is particularly strong. Finally, as I've already said, Ukrainian defense against Russia is heavily dependent on Western arms supplies. These have become ever more vital over time as a counterbalance to Russia's often obsolete equipment, but an enormous superiority in manpower. In this way, the conflict has escalated, though it's stopped short so far of involving nuclear weapons, even so-called tactical ones. (coughs) And, uh, of course, to cross that threshold would be a really serious escalation with incalculable consequences. The system of international great power relations based on mutual nuclear deterrence since 1945 has so far held On the other hand, there's no doubt that we've now entered a kind of second Cold War with Russia and, to a considerable extent, also China, pitted against the West. And these are dangerous times indeed. Thank you very much.
1: There are quite a few about looking at the differences in attitude between Putin and Hitler and i'll i'll try and put a couple of them together first of all how do you think they have reacted or would react or do react to failure failure several times during the second world war and now putin and the invasion of
0: yes that's a <coughs> excuse me a very very interesting question how uh, do putin and hitler comparing the two, react to failure. Hitler essentially refused to recognise failure until just the last few months. And so the, his last throw was the so-called Battle of the Bulge when he uh, gathered his forces to combat the uh, American, British, Canadian and so on, the Allies invasion of Western Europe. And there was a bulge in their, their line and he tried to snap that off and completely failed. Uh, he had a kind of breakdown after that and, and um, basically said, uh, it's all finished. He, he recovered his, his, his nerve to some extent and was always hoping to be rescued by some new development, whether it was so-called wonder weapons <coughs> or miracle weapons, uh, you know, the V2 rocket or uh, that kind of thing, or whether it was by the death of uh, Roosevelt uh, shortly before the end of the war, which he again uh, grasped that as a kind of lost straw. Um, Putin is not defeated in the sense that Hitler was I mean his regime is still intact Russia has not been invaded Uh, it's it's the opposite so he's able much more than Hitler was to uh, paper over defeat and to say well you're not being defeated this is all going according to plan even though we know that's not true so it's a quite different kind of defeat I think in that sense Hitler's is far more final and extreme Uh, In propaganda, of course, neither of them, public propaganda, could afford to admit that they were being defeated.
1: Hitler, from your description, demonstrates almost nationalistic fervour, this racial purity belief. Um, Russia, in the form of Putin's leadership, looks, at least in some ways, to be supporting an oligarch, criminal-based society, Do you think there's a difference between nationalism, racial purity on the one side, and supporting this oligarch criminal financial leadership which is there uh, in Russia at the
0: moment? Yeah, less than you might think. So Hitler wasn't really a nationalist in any conventional sense. He was racist. He believed in the so-called Aryan race, and he was generous enough to... Extend that categorization to Scandinavians, for example, or some of the Dutch. Uh, his vision was essentially racist. Um, and uh, Putin's um, vision is more nationalist, in fact, it's more Russian nationalism. So uh, that it accounts to some degree why Hitler was so much more radical than Putin in his treatment of other races. He really did see world history in terms of struggle between races. Uh, And he also believed, um, as I said, in the, um, in in war, conflict, as the kind of motor of toughening up a race, a race, his own. So that in the longer term he was not going to see any end to conflict at all. War was going to be perpetual and Universal as I said, um, Putin is much more, much more limited in his vision for Russia and its future. What he doesn't like is to see criticism of Russia and the Russians, and that's why, rather stranger to us, I think he's, um, managed, he's managed to kind of praise Stalin as well as the Czars. Uh, they're all um, they're all part of the great Russian tradition, all part of Russian identity.
1: And. Um, do You think I should always ask a historian about the future, shouldn't you? So do, um, can you f- feel you pre- can predict an end game here? Are we going to see the Iron Curtain fall down again as the, as the war mm. delineates itself somewhere in the east of Ukraine, Or is he going to react as the cornered bear that people suggest?
0: Well, I, I'm very worried about, um, uh, about predicting the future, uh, because I, I once published a book a short book that said German reunification was never going to happen in my lifetime. (laughs) And that came out in August 1989. (laughs) So, ever since then, I've been a bit cautious. Um, But, uh, of course, there's been a massive amount of speculation about how this is all going to end. And there are a number of different scenarios. Uh, But at the moment, both sides are digging in. The negotiated settlement does not look as if it's on the cards. If anything... Uh, it's deepened. Ukrainians are clearly not going to give up until they've got all their territory back. They might be prepared to negotiate over Crimea, but certainly not the Donbass region. Um, And and Putin cannot afford to admit defeat. So one possible scenario which has been canvassed is Putin is overthrown by a a less uncompromising uh, uh, politician or politicians But he is a dictator who has got a very, very tight control over the country. Uh, The only way a regime like that uh, actually ends is by uh, uh, being overthrown from within, so within the hierarchy. Um, The other thing I'd like to say is that um, Hitler's regime was also a regime of corruption and of uh, capitalism uh, run riot, it would a regime, a kleptocracy. Uh, all the leading Nazis amassed huge fortunes um, while claiming that they weren't. So Hitler, for example, uh, ostentatiously refused to accept his salary from a state as Reich Chancellor, but he charged royalties on the use of his image on postage stamps uh, and made everybody buy copies of Mein Kampf. So he, he, didn't, you know, he was corrupt as, as well. In any dictatorship... Uh, you've got no legitimate criticism, no free press, no independent police force, and the possibility of actually criticising uh, a, a regime, the di- dictator, uh, is so limited that it inevitably, dictatorship inevitably leads to uh, corruption and kleptocracy.
2: Um, I have a two-part question. Frau Merkel, of course, spent most of her life in Eastern Germany so she would have known what the, term, the Russians were like she spoke the language of course herself and her government was really responsible for having the pipeline, bringing the fuel in fact directly from Russia into Germany the other part of I don't know whether anybody actually opposed uh, that policy or not uh, I'm not sure about that the second part of my question and I think my memory is correct on this, but I may be wrong, that Zelensky's predecessor banned, in fact, the use of Russian in the Ukraine. This reminds me of the silliness of the British government 40 to 50 years ago, banning Welsh, in fact, on street signs and direction signs and so forth. Do you think one or both of those were important initial conditions for Putin, in fact,
0: to launch his invasion of the Ukraine. Well, uh, what we're, <coughs> excuse me, what we're really talking about here, of course, is the Western reaction, and I think um, the the German dependency on Russian, particularly natural gas supplies, uh, is partly, of course, as you suggested, a a product of the, uh, the relations between the personal relations between Merkel and Putin. Merkel grew up in East Germany, speaks Russian. Putin was a KGB agent in, uh, in Germany and speaks German, so they were able to get on a personal level. Uh, however, you have to remember that Gerhard Schröder, her predecessor of the Social Democratic Party, and she's from the Conservative Christian Democrats, uh, was also, and has also, and continues to be closely involved uh, with, with the Russians. What's behind all that, I think, is the feeling of the German political elite that uh, a feeling of responsibility, even guilt, in some cases, for the atrocities of Nazism, and a desire to overcome these. So they've been looking for friendship with uh, those countries like Poland and Russia, to whom the Nazis did such terrifying, terrible damage. Uh, and uh, you find, interestingly, that in, in uh, German political opinion is very divided. The old intellectuals of the older generation, like Jurgen Habermas, for example. Or Aliza Scharzer, um, are very critical of the Ukrainian resistance. They do not want Germany to help or get involved in it in any way at all. And I think that comes back from that, that generation's feelings of responsibility uh, for, uh, particularly because of their parents' responsibility for the uh, Second World War and the Holocaust. Uh, younger generations are much more prepared to support the Ukrainians. And Olaf Scholz, the social democratic uh, chancellor of Germany, has, I think, been pushed maybe a little reluctantly towards what the younger generation want, towards uh, supporting the the, uh, Ukrainian war effort with uh, money and material. Thank you for an amazing presentation of history over the last
1: hundred years. I've just finished reading a book by Tim Marshall, and he looks over the last 4,000 years of geographies globally. And I think I'm right to say that he draws inclusion of the Soviets, that there's a natural sort of borders around mountains and rivers that would indicate that Ukraine sort of naturally would fall within the Soviet sphere of influence uh, because of natural borders, let alone buffeting uh, from what's happened war-wise over the last 4,000
0: years between other civilizations and the Russian Empire? Um, yeah, that's kind of a geopolitical view. Uh, I'm very skeptical, I have to say. Uh, there are many, many examples of countries that extend beyond natural boundaries or, or share an area delineated by natural boundaries like rivers or mountains uh, with other nationalities. It's rather the same as the, uh, the idea that a nation is defined by... Its linguistic homogeneity, in which case, what do you do with Switzerland, for example? Uh, Or even the previous questioner uh, mentioned Wales and and the Welsh. And again, it's linguistic, well, Welsh language exists. Uh, And incidentally, my parents were punished in school for uh, speaking Welsh as well. Though, so so it, it is these nations are a product of history above all else. And there's a mixture in them of. Many different factors. Geography is one, certainly, but linguistic history, uh, public memory, it's a very complicated business. And every time you try and look at, uh, try and define what is a nation, uh, you run up against a lot of problems. Uh, My question is, uh, the Donbass region in Ukraine had uh, Russian-speaking supporters uh, at the beginning of the war or, or before what, what, what uh, you know, this particular situation, has that changed in public opinion amongst the Russian supporters in mm. Donbass now? Uh, yes, you can't draw a neat, uh, neat dividing line between Russian speakers in Ukraine supporting Putin and Ukrainian speakers uh, supporting Zelensky. There are quite a large, substantial number of Russian um, uh, of Russian speakers in Ukraine who would prefer to live in a democracy rather than a dictatorship. They prefer to live in Ukraine uh, rather than in, uh, in, in, in uh, Russia. And we've seen the damage inflicted, the violent uh, war crimes committed by the Russians in occupied areas. Incidentally, a little known fact is completely irrelevant, but um, uh, the Donbass uh, industrial region was founded by a Welshman, um, uh, Mr. Hughes, who was invited over by, uh, in the 19th century to, uh, uh, with his uh, a team of Welsh miners to start up coal mining there and uh, was a great success by the local aristocratic landowner. And uh, Donetsk was originally called Yuzovka, named after Hughes, before it then uh, was taken over by the Bolsheviks and became stalino which for obvious reasons, they changed that name as well later on. so it's gone through a number of uh, a number of incarnations but um, uh, the, the Donbass region is a very important, the most important industrial area of Ukraine, and that's one reason why it's being fought over so, so bitterly. I'm, af-
1: I'm afraid we're going to have to stop there. Um, you um, could go on answering questions all night, I'm absolutely sure. but ladies and gentlemen, would we thank Sir Richard Evans for his speech? Now?